Well, as I already said this morning, we are celebrating baptism. Uh, when I was talking in the foyer before the service with Ahmed, he, he thought we were doing the baptisms at the beginning of the service. And I said, no, man, I have to put them at the end of the message so everybody will pay attention to what I have to say first. It's kind of like when my children eat their dinner. They have certain things that they eat first. And I'm like, well, why aren't you eating this? They say, saving best for last, right? And that's what we're doing today. We're going to have the baptisms to follow because, man, in the Christian life, we just love baptisms. They bring such great joy when we see people take steps of faith and commitment to follow Jesus. So we're saving the best for last this morning. Now, many of us who grew up in church, we're probably very familiar with baptism. However, there might be others this morning who are new to the church or perhaps they come from other faith traditions where baptism baptism is practiced differently than we do it here. So I want to talk about why we baptize, what the significance of baptism is, and what we can learn from three accounts of baptism that we find in the book of Acts. So first of all, why do we practice baptism? Before he ascended to heaven, Jesus gave his apostles this command that we call the Great Commission. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Now, this command is the clearest reason why we practice baptism. As followers of Jesus, we believe that like those original apostles, our greatest responsibility and privilege is to make others disciples or followers of Jesus. And in Matthew 28, Jesus, he highlights the two ways in which we do that. He says, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything that he commanded. And so in this commission, Jesus makes baptism an indispensable part of following him right along obeying his commands. And right from the outset, we might find ourselves rubbing up against something that we may not like or we find countercultural. And it is being told what to do. You see, most of us don't often respond well to being commanded or having to obey someone else. But herein lies something critical about being a follower of Jesus. He's the Lord of your life. Now, we talk a lot about Jesus being our Savior, rescuing us from sin and death, and these are all true. But being a disciple of Jesus means that he is also Lord or Master, this means that he is in charge and we submit to him in how we live our lives, that we obey his commands, and this includes his command to be baptized. Now, I do know people who love Jesus and they are committed followers of Christ, but for whatever reason, they have refused to get baptized. And they've told me that they feel like they shouldn't have to. But Matthew 28 is clear that Getting baptized is a duty of a follower of Christ. But you see, it should be more than just duty or obligation. Getting baptized should be our joy. Jesus is Lord, but he is a loving Lord. And his commands are for our best. And so by obeying them, including being baptized, we demonstrate to others and to Jesus that we trust him and that we love him too. Now, when Jesus gave his followers this command to be baptized, it wasn't a new or foreign concept to them. See, as Israelites, baptism was already an idea that they were accustomed to. Jews would 
use water ceremonially to cleanse themselves before entering God's presence in the temple. And baptism was the way that non-Jewish persons were initiated into the Jewish faith. And so baptism had already been this symbol for incorporating people into the community of believers long before Jesus commanded it for his followers in the New Testament. Now, another reason that we are baptized is that Jesus was baptized himself. And as his apprentices, we follow in the master's footsteps. Mark 1.9 says, At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan, or by John in the Jordan. So, this is why we get baptized. But there are a couple of key points in our understanding and our practice of baptism here that may differ from how other churches practice baptism. First, I want to point out is eligibility. We practice what is known as believer's baptism. And as such, we believe that baptism is for those who confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and commit themselves to following him. This means that we reserve baptism for those who can understand its meaning, those who are accountable to Christ and the church, and those who voluntarily request it for themselves upon the basis of their faith in response to Jesus. So that's the first one. It's eligibility. Second, our practice or mode of baptism here is by immersion. Baptism by immersion is when a person is submerged into a body of water, like the tank we're going to have up here, and then they are brought out. And this mode symbolizes that the believer has died to their old sinful life, just like Jesus died, and they are now brought out, and it's symbolic of just like when Jesus was raised to new life. But though this is our practice, this is not the only mode of believer's baptism that churches practice. Other modes can consist of sprinkling, which symbolize the shed blood of Christ that purifies and washes us from all of our sin. And there is also baptism by pouring, which symbolizes the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So all three of these modes of baptism, immersion, sprinkling, and pouring, they all have wonderful meanings and symbolism. Now, unfortunately, at times, Christians have allowed the mode of baptism to fracture relationships, judging one believer's baptism as inferior based solely on this mode. This has been to the church's shame. And in the same way, it would be Ludicrous if someone came into our fellowship and suggested that our practice of communion here was inferior based that our mode differed from theirs because we use juice instead of wine or because we use these individual little cups instead of all sharing from one common cup as was likely the case that happened when Jesus instituted the ordinance. Fortunately, though, some time ago, some wise people at Calvary acknowledged this, and they wrote into our policy that people who are baptized by these other modes of believer's baptism, so upon their confession of faith, could join the fellowship as members. And recently, this week, I was talking to Dave Barker, who said that not too long ago, Calvary actually celebrated a baptism by pouring for someone who was, it would have been difficult for them to get into the tank. And I think that's wonderful and beautiful. See, what's of primary importance to our view of baptism is the person's comprehension of the gospel. 
their confession and obedience to Christ and not simply the mode of believer's baptism. So let's take a look at three accounts of people who were baptized in the book of Acts and what we can learn from those stories. The first is from Acts chapter 8. So now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city, and he amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought that you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray for the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. What a story. Well, the main thing that sticks out to me the most from this story that we can learn about baptism from this account is that just because you have been baptized, it doesn't mean that you fully understand the Christian life or that you have attained spiritual maturity. Just because you've been baptized doesn't mean you fully understand the Christian life or have obtained spiritual maturity. And this is a reminder, first of all, to those of us who have already been baptized, that we are still susceptible of committing grave sins which have severe consequences. And so this should be a reminder to us not to become complacent in our faith. But second, I think that this should be an encouragement to those who have not been baptized yet to take this step of obedience. How is this an encouragement, you might ask? Well, I think it shows that baptism isn't for spiritually elite or those who have proved themselves worthy. You see, the text says that Simon was baptized because Philip proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, and that Simon believed and was baptized. See, it's obvious that Simon didn't understand everything. He was so wrong to try and buy the power to bestow the Holy Spirit on others. But the text says he believed what Philip preached, which was the good news of Jesus and it was this trust in the gospel that made Simon eligible to be baptized. So the story should encourage Christians who have yet to be baptized because in it we see that the prerequisite for baptism, it's not having it all together. It's not being perfect. No, the requirement for baptism is, do you confess Jesus as Lord and Savior and are you committed to following him? 
See, all of us who get baptized, we all still need to grow in our faith. We're all still capable of sinning and succumbing to temptation. Whether we're baptized or not, we're all still in great need of grace and mercy and forgiveness. See, I needed to hear this when I was 16 years old. When I was 16 years old, I had already been through like baptism class like two times already. I was following Jesus. I confessed him as Lord and Savior. I was committed to following him, but I was hesitant to get baptized because I believed I wasn't there yet. There was this, you know, not being ready, you know. It was the stage of Christian maturity and holiness that I thought that one should be at before they take this step of baptism. But if you asked me what there looked like, I wouldn't have known. But see, arriving or attaining complete spiritual maturity, it's not reality, friends. If it was, I'm not sure how many of us would actually be baptized. You see, fortunately for me, years later, one of my youth leaders asked me why I hadn't been baptized yet, and I explained to him all about not being there yet. And he just said, Dave, do you trust Jesus? Are you committed to following him? And I was like, you know that I am. And then he's like, so get baptized then. Now, this wasn't the most theologically deep or rich conversation I'd ever had on the subject, but at that time, it's what I needed to hear. You see, I'd already believed, and I simply needed to trust Jesus and obey his command and be baptized. In the 2000 movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou?, there's this awesome baptism scene where these three outlaws who are on the run, they stumble upon this church that's performing baptisms in a lake, and they are just standing there, just taken aback by the whole scene. And one of them, Delmar, who is particularly taken in by the whole thing, he all of a sudden just dashes into the lake. He accosts the minister who's doing the baptism, and all of a sudden, he's baptized. And he emerges out of the water, and Delmar has this great joy, and he he proclaims to his crooked companions, he says to them, well, that's it, boys. I've been redeemed. The preacher washed away all my sins and transgressions. It's the straight and narrow from here on out, and heaven everlasting's my reward. Neither God nor man's got nothing on me now. Come on in, boys. The water's fine. I love that scene. I love his enthusiasm and how he just jumps at the opportunity to get baptized. But he doesn't fully understand baptism. You see, he says the preacher washed away his sins. However, the preacher doesn't wash away sins, and neither does baptism. Jesus is the only one who washes away sins and saves people. And it's when we place our faith in Christ that we are saved and cleansed. And so this illustrates, again, why we practice believer's baptism. We hold that people are saved when they come to faith and start following Jesus, and it's after that that they get baptized. See, baptism is an outward portrayal of an inward reality. It's the symbol of what has already taken place, salvation through trusting in Jesus. We don't believe that baptism itself is a sacrament that saves us, and there is nothing special in the water or the preacher that can save us. Only Jesus saves 
In believers' baptism, a person's salvation comes first through faith in Christ, and then baptism is the response of obedience that follows. Simon the sorcerer shows us that we don't have to be perfect in order to be baptized, and that baptized believers, they haven't arrived. They can still be full of bitterness and sin, but don't you just love how Simon responds to Peter when Peter points out the error in his ways? Pray to me, pray for me, so that the Lord, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. See, all of us are works in progress, just like Simon. We all need to have sensitive hearts when the Spirit or fellow believers point out an error in our ways. And then just like Simon, we can and we should ask others to pray for us. Well, the next account we're going to look at picks up in verse 26 of Acts 8. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home, he was sitting in his chariot reading a book, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to the chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I? He said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Well, once when I was a youth leader... Uh, I chaperoned a youth campout, and myself and another youth leader, we set up our tent beside a couple of boys who, you know, like to stay up late and tell each other some jokes. And uh, as we were trying to sleep, we overheard one of them tell this joke where the punchline had to do with a eunuch. And once the punchline was delivered, both those boys were like in hysterics, and the other youth leader and I, we looked at each other and just rolled our eyes and tried to get back to sleep. But a few moments later, we heard the one who received the joke quietly say to the other one, what's a eunuch? And then the one who told the joke said, I don't know either. <laughs> and then we were laughing in hysterics. A eunuch is a man who has been castrated. And this was usually done to male servants who worked with female royalty so that they would not be tempted to make sexual advances on the women they served. That was likely the case here. So the eunuch in this story came from Ethiopia, where he is employed in the court service to the queen mother, Candace, who is the effective ruler of that country. Now, the fact that he is a eunuch and from a foreign country is essential to what the author of Acts, Luke, is trying to tell us about baptism. You see, this man had come to Jerusalem to worship God, 
And people like him from foreign countries who worshipped Yahweh, they were known as God-fearers. And so they worshipped Yahweh. They were not full Jews. They could not worship in the temple. They were not fully a part of God's people. Now, most people, they, however, could convert to Judaism, right? They could become full members of the community and thus enter the temple, but not this eunuch. He could not. You see, Jewish law strictly forbid it. In Deuteronomy 23, 1, it says that no one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. So no matter how much this man wanted to worship Yahweh and be a part of the community of faith, he was not allowed. But that's not the case when it comes to Jesus and being part of the community of faith. You see, what we learn from his baptism is that following Jesus is for anyone. Jesus doesn't discriminate by race or position or by past, and neither should we. Following Jesus in baptism brings everybody onto level ground in the family of God. And the Ethiopian's race and physical status do not affect his standing with Jesus as they did with his acceptance in the temple. The important thing is that he believed the good news about Jesus and he was committed to following him. So the implications of this story for the church are clear. By uniting diverse people into one body where Christ is the head, it means that the church is going to be a very eclectic group. It's going to be made up of people from various cultures, different economic classes, and a myriad of past experiences. And baptism signifies our unity or harmony, even between former enemies. It incorporates us into a community where we need each other and where our past doesn't affect our present standing. And the story of the eunuch shows us also how baptism should be our joy. I love the eunuch's enthusiasm. And when he says, what can stand in the way of my being baptized? He wasn't going to let anything. And he says, it says in the text that he went on his way rejoicing. And you and I, we should have the same kind of enthusiasm, whether it's about our own baptism, when we reflect back on that, or when we witness others get baptized. And this is one of the reasons why we believe it should be public, right? To encourage others. Baptism may be about an individual's response to faith, but it does in affect an entire community. And we find it, it's important to make baptism an experience that the entire body shares. This is part of the reason we're going to bring the kids back into the sanctuary so that they can be a part of this too. So we had two stories. Let's go on to the last one. Acts 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. So he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. 
So they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias, and the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with the authority of the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man's my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. And at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem amongst those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, in this final baptism account, we see that baptism is a sign of a new and changed life. And Saul's life change, it's about as dramatic as it gets, isn't it? On his way to arrest Christians, he's accosted by Jesus himself, and life is never the same after that. After being healed, he's baptized, and we see how his new changed life immediately gets to work. Verse 20 says, at once he began to preach in the synagogue that Jesus is the Son of God. And the people in the synagogue, they didn't know what to do with them. Even the apostles didn't know what to do with him. Eventually, Paul's new life led him around the Roman Empire, preaching about Jesus, writing many of the letters that make up our New Testament. So baptism, it's about a new and changed life that we have in Jesus. And it's not that baptism in itself brings about this life change. It's the Holy Spirit who does that. But baptism is part of it. And it's not merely a symbol. Baptism affects real change that reflects both divine grace and human reality. It does this in close association with a person's faith decision and receiving the Holy Spirit and not apart from them. We often will use the term sign to express things like this. See, a sign is a biblical term that refers to an act of God. So the burning bush was a sign or Jesus's miracles, they were a sign. But a sign can also reflect to human action. Like when the Israelites put blood on the doorposts, right? During Passover. That was a sign. Another sign is something we celebrate here once a month. Communion. So when we take communion, we're not actually consuming the actual blood and flesh of Christ in order to be saved. But we're taking bread and cup and we're remembering what Christ did for us. But this act of remembering, it's meant to actually have a profound impact on our lives. These acts represent both God's saving action in Jesus and our response to God's actions. Both of these signs, communion and baptism, they should affect change in our lives. 
Baptism is more than just this mere physical action. Those being baptized, they should appreciate this experience, right? And the full benefit of this act of obedience to Christ and the new and changed life that following Jesus brings. I love how uh, Eugene Peterson puts it in the message in Romans 6 when he writes, that's what happened in baptism. When we went under the water, we left the old country of sin behind. And when we came up out of the water, we entered into a new country of grace, a new life in a new land. That's what baptism into the life of Jesus means. When we were lowered into the water, it's like the burial of Jesus. And when we were raised up out of the water, it's like the resurrection of Jesus. Each of us is raised into a light-filled world by our Father so that we can see where we're going in our new grace-sovereign country. Could it be any clearer? Our old way of life was nailed to the cross with Christ. A decisive end to that sin-miserable life. No longer at sin's every beck and call. What we believe is this. If we get included into Christ's sin-conquering death, then we will also get included into his life-saving resurrection. So Saul, who becomes Paul, shows us that baptism is a sign of this new and changed life. Now, I think it's important that we be completely honest about all that this new life in Christ brings with it. Christ told us, or Christ told Ananias in Acts 9.16, he said that Saul must suffer for his name. But often when we tell others about being a Christian, we like to highlight the really good and positive things. We tell them about forgiveness and salvation and eternal life. And sometimes maybe we can skip over the parts about suffering or denying ourselves or taking up the cross daily. But Jesus tells us that these are also essential aspects of following him. And that temptation to kind of like withhold some of the difficulty, it kind of reminds me of when Andrea and I got engaged and how I was eager to tell the world about our love and, and how much I loved my soon-to-be bride and how ours was the love for the ages. And when I noticed, when I would share this with older couples who'd been married for a while, that they would have a little twinkle in their eye when I would tell them this. They would smile at their spouse and give each other a little knowing look, nod. And at first I thought, you know, this is great. Like, I thought they were happy for us. Maybe we inspired them to, like, rekindle the flame themselves, right? No. No. I had soon came to realize what these looks actually meant. The fools have no idea what they're getting themselves into. You see, that doesn't mean that they weren't excited for us and didn't promote the idea of marriage. Rather, they understood what married life is really like. For sure, it includes love and passion and wonderful times together, but it also includes enduring through difficult seasons, being faithful to one another, and loving each other even when you're not feeling it. These older couples, they were excited about marriage, but they also knew what was in store and that that included hardship. And the same holds true for our relationship with Jesus. We should be excited to share the benefits of trusting in Christ, but we also need to be honest about the entire gospel and everything that is in store for disciples, both the good and the difficult. And we see from this account that for Saul, his transformed life, it didn't take too long before it brought difficulty. After preaching a few days, it says in verse 23, 
that there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him, and that day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. See, Jesus pretty much guarantees that if we follow him, our life will not be free of trouble. In John 15, he says, Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. See, following Jesus and being baptized means that you may be persecuted. It means that we must take up our cross daily and follow him, but it's worth it. And you don't have to just take my word for it. There are many people here who've been following Jesus for longer than I have, who've been baptized, and they will tell you that his salvation, his forgiveness, his faithfulness, and his love, it far outweighs all the difficulty. If you want to know more about baptism, or if you want to be baptized yourself, come and talk to me. Talk to one of our elders or anybody on staff, and we can give you a baptism application. We'd love to meet with you. Some people may have fears about baptism, but what does it mean having to stand up publicly, or maybe fears about things in their past that might get in the way. But I want to encourage you. I think we should all be like that eunuch when he says don't let anything stand in my way of getting baptized and we don't want anything to stand in your way of getting baptized either